Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 184. I'm Steve Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. Joined today by a real legend. Happy to chat with you, Mr. Robert Drysdale. Robert, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Steve. Thanks for having me, man. It's a pleasure to be here. I am glad to have you here, man. And of course, when I get a guest like you on, you know, where the the mind goes is talking about things like jujitsu history. I kind of think of you as the jujitsu resident historian. Now, Robert, one of the interesting things about your backstory compared to, I think, most grapplers is just how long you've been a key player in the scene. I mean, you've been a, a black belt for longer than I've been training, right? And I've been a black belt for many years now. So, Something I would like to discuss with you and maybe get your feedback on is how you can, at this level and at this level in your journey, continue to relate to people more in the like the white belt or the early stages. But before we get into that, maybe just a, a quick update. What have you been up to recently? What are you doing these days? Are you are you teaching? Are you still working with more junior people or are there other things on the plate for you? I went through a phase where I was teaching a lot of beginners. Uh, I was getting a kick out of teaching beginners again. And, but I, I like to train people competitively. It's, it's a conflict because on one end, I love high-performance environments, right? Like that's where I thrive first as a competitor and now as a coach. But at the same time, it's a very difficult demographic to work with because they have very very strange expectations, you know, as, as time changes. Like, you know, they, they don't want to be good at jiu They want to be famous, and I don't know how to do that. You know, I, I know how to make you good at jujitsu. I have no idea how to make you famous. No, the, nor is that my job, but it's kind of what they want. You know, not all of them, but a lot of them. That's sort of become like the new goal. Like that is why we train is to make money and become famous. I'm like, man, you got to go to Hollywood, man. You got to get out of jujitsu right now. <laughs> you know, so that's, that's, it's a struggle in that regard. But I love high performance in general, like anything, you know, I, I like, I thrive around individuals who are competitive and want to excel and that's where I'm happiest, you know? So I'm back to a competition class every evening and I try to make people puke every day. That's my goal. Sometimes we get two people puking a night. Last night, no one puked. So I tell myself I didn't do my job. The goal is to get at least one person to vomit. And, and, and I like that. I like that because I think that deep down, that's what people want. I mean, well, not everyone, but the, the kind of crowd that I want to work with, you know, like that I enjoy working with is they, you know, you always remember the coach that pushes you hardest and furthest and you know, gets the most out of you. You know, that's kind of my job. And I, I really enjoy that. But other than that, my days are spent, I'm working on a new book. I'm working on a sequel to Opening Closed Guard. It deals with, you know, the the, the end of the first wave, which is like the Helio Carlos years and uh, the separation from judo, right? And it focuses more on the, 
the rise of the Guanabara Federation in 67 and the change in dynamics of what jiu-jitsu was that came from that and all the way through jiu-jitsu in the 70s and 80s, the, the gym that was shared between Carlson Gracie and Hollis Gracie. And I think that gym, it was Figueiredo de Magalhães, the street was called. It is probably one of the most important and neglected episodes in the history of jiu-jitsu. And it just dawned on me when I was like talking to some of these guys, they, they used to train with some of these old timers, right? And the way they spoke about it was with such nostalgia. And they're describing that environment to me. And I'm going, that's the jiu-jitsu that we train today. The jiu-jitsu we train today was born in 1972, all the way to, you know, 81-ish or 82 when Hollies died. And that's the world we live in was created by them in that academy, right? That surf culture, the acai culture, that hang loose, surf kind of relaxed manners. That wasn't from the original Gracie Academy. So it was, it was just like, man, this is such such important thing like that no one's, people don't even know. I mean, people that lived it might be aware of it, but I think the vast majority of practitioners have no idea where jiu-jitsu comes from. All the way to today to what I call the Americanization of Brazilian jiu-jitsu, right? Like we're, we're living in an era where, and I mean, it's, it's funny this conversation about American and Brazilian jiu-jitsu because, you know, in terms of technique, people seem to claim that, oh, Americans are innovating, which is about the most idiotic thing you can, like, it makes no sense that anyone believe that. Like, innovation is a part of Brazilian jiu-jitsu, of jiu-jitsu for as, I mean, since you can go back as far as you want, it's always been there. Innovation has always been there. It's just no different. The difference is it's not exclusively in the hands of Brazilian, which, which, which it has been for the past 20, 30 years, right? Where it is American is in cultural terms. In cultural terms, it's very little Brazilian or Japanese left for that matter. It's very, very American in many ways. and It's becoming more so. So that's what I refer to as the Americanization. It's very little to do with the technique, as people claim. It has to do with the culture, a culture that including Brazilians have adapted and to some degree even led the change. The change was led, led more by Brazilians themselves than Americans because the second they stepped foot here, they kind of abandoned their old ways in Brazil and embraced the American way. I mean, they did it very quickly too, and they did it for obvious reasons, money. You know, it was it was just a quick, quick, fastest way to make money. So was to adapt to the American way of doing things, and they did that very quickly. So that's the Americanization process that I'm, I'm discussing in the book, and but that's towards the the, the end, right? Like that's the, the end of the of this new work. So that's where I'm at right now. I teach in the evening, and I work on the book during the day. That sounds awesome, man. And yeah, I am so appreciative of the work that you do when it comes to capturing the stuff. Like I, I said, I kind of think of you as jujitsu's resident historian and I can only imagine that it must be a real challenge to get some of these details because presumably a lot of the stuff was not well documented at the time. I mean, I presume that, you know, back before UFC one, there was not a massive effort to document what at the time was not a major sport in the state. So I think it's awesome, especially while a lot of these players are still alive, you know, that you're getting this information and documenting it so that we don't lose the history of the sport. Yeah, I, I became more aware of it, you know, after talking to some of the old timers that were passing away. It's like, man, these guys, they know so much. All these questions that we have about an era that's gone, no one recorded it. So we don't really, all these question marks, right? It's like, man, like we got to make a minimal effort to collect this understanding because it's not out of curiosity. Like history has not, it's not about curiosity. Like people think, you know, it's just a, a nerdy hobbit. History is about understanding the present. And if you can understand the present, you can shape it and then maybe make a better future, right? That's what history really is about. It's about the future, right? How do we steer jiu-jitsu in a better direction? Because we can understand the mistakes of the past and not repeat them, hopefully. But people don't see it that way. They think it's a nerdy thing and it's just to do with like, who cares that people are all dead? It makes no difference. It makes all the difference. But it's, you know, I think that's bigger, you know, failure in the educational system, not 
you know, the people don't see that. Just one thing, see, real quick, like, I, I am not the resident historian in jiu-jitsu, not, not by long margin. Like, there's, I mean, Roberto Pedrera is, is the real deal, man. The guy's been, you know, his works. My my interpretation is very much inspired by him, at the very least, say the least, you know. So I'm very thankful for the work, the heavy lifting that he's done. Some other guys as well, but mainly Pedrera, and not only Portuguese and Japanese, but even like a multitude of languages. Like, his books are available on, on Amazon and so when it comes to being a historian, like I'm, I'm a blue belt at best. Like that's <laughs> that's me being generous to myself, man. There are layers to this, just like there are layers to jujitsu. There are layers into writing history. Yeah, well, I mean that's a fantastic segue because that kind of ties into what I wanted to talk about with you today. You know, a big part of history, like you said, a big part of why it's important is not just as a, a nerdy hobby, but because it is a way that you can connect with the next generation and teach them what came before. And I think most people find, especially as they get more advanced in their journey, that you start to look at jujitsu almost generationally. And I I think people who listen to the podcast a lot will have heard uh, me and a lot of the guests say things like, oh, back when I was a, you know, a white belt, here's the way that things were done and they're so different now. And this does present a problem where the more experienced you get, the the more of a a knowledge gap and just a, a time and experience gap there is between between you and the next generation. And it does become increasingly harder sometimes to connect with that generation unless you really work at it and make sure that you understand them. I remember when I started training, I mean, a lot of the the instructors that I found easiest to relate with and understand with were at the time, you know, maybe purple or brown belts. I found that training with way more experienced people was often challenging because they were so many levels ahead of me that they kind of forgotten what it was like to be the new person in town. And I'd love to explore this with you, not just from a technical and a teaching standpoint, but even from a cultural standpoint, what that gap looks like to you. And is that a challenge that you ever have to deal with? So I know you've talked, for example, about running competition classes. I don't know if these are primarily with brown and black belts or if it's really anyone who is willing to step it up and and go for it at at the big level. But I'd love to get your perspective on, is this something that you see in the competition room? I mean, what does the structure look like there? Do you have have white and blue belts in your competition team or is it mostly the the black and the brown belts that you deal with the way i do it is i make it optional we have a fundamentals class at 5 30 p.m and then we have a competition class at 6 30 p.m like the higher ranking you know belts that want to train at 5 30 they can but the class is fundamental it's one hour long it's a little bit easier it's you know the technique is you know basic oriented like it's not complicated it's not we don't push people mainly physically and technically it's less sophisticated right whereas a 630 class i allow people that are beginner beginners like people that have never trained before they're welcome to that class but they got to keep up you know i don't slow down the class for them that's kind of like that and, and then you get, to, you, you get like some kids that wrestled in high school and they adapted very quickly to that environment they just don't know what a triangle is and sometimes you know like i don't like to do this because that's not the point of the class but i have to slow down instruction because i have like a third of my class will be white belts because they want to be in that class and I, I don't stop them. You know, some of them, most of them never even competed, but like they're hungry, right? And that's really what I'm after more than the medals, man. I like to see hungry people, man. Like that's, it just gives me the incentive to keep doing what I'm doing. Like I, I get a kick out of seeing people that have that warrior spirit. And if I can give them an outlet to manifest that, that's a win. That's that's where I, I, I get a kick out of that more than anything else I do in jiu-jitsu. Awesome. And you bring up a good point, which is that, man, sometimes you get people who come into your room and they're already competent grapplers. 
maybe they take a background from wrestling or judo or something. And you can obviously tell that when they walk into the room. And often it's just a matter of filling a few specific holes in their game. So in the case of wrestlers, often you have to teach them how to avoid getting submitted. And also, of course, if it's gi training, then you have to teach them about the implications of that and how those grips can change what would otherwise be a, a closer to a no gi or a wrestling grappling match. But I would ask, though, when you bring these people in, so you've got white and blue belts, for example, in in the room, when you're teaching people who are relatively new and they, they don't have the benefit of, of massive amounts of experience, what do you consider to be kind of the base building blocks that you give to those people who are newer in terms of, I, I don't know if you'd want to say the fundamentals necessarily, but at least in terms of the concepts and the way that you describe it, how do you take that, you know, that zero or one stripe white belt who rolls into your comp class and wants to be a world champ? Is there anything that you need to do to explain to them kind of the, the basis of jujitsu if they don't already get it i think it's it's a very it's a very difficult question to answer because i mean what is i mean what is basics you know like what is what are the fundamentals of jujitsu what are the things that people absolutely we, we can narrow it down to like to a degree right like you know shrimping blocking and moving you know like what an arm bar is you know get to the back don't let people get to your back we can break it down in very simple terms but when it comes to instruction, like it's just it's, it, it doesn't take much for it to get very complicated. Because if I'm going to give you a full description of how to escape the back, it's not simple, right? If I'm going to give you a real description of how to escape mount, it's not simple. It it really isn't. Like oh, it's we we think of it as simple because it's like this is like basic jujitsu, but it's not simple. It's so not simple that some black belts can't do it. You understand? So it's getting into this vague conversation about new and old. Like new is better than old, and it's just I think it's a poor way to frame it because. And we all do it. I do it. You do it. Everyone frames it that way. It's just like when you think about it, it just really isn't the best way to frame it because a lot of the things that are considered to be basic are really difficult to pull off, right? And then other things that are like seen as like more sophisticated are easier to pull off, you know? So what I do with my beginners is we have what we call a 15-day lesson program, right? So if this were like music lesson, it would be like teaching you do, re, mi, like the basics of the basics. And then before I hand you a guitar and let you play. That's kind of how I solve that problem. But it's not, it really is enough. They walk away with that 15-day lesson plan just knowing what a closed guard and an armbar are, but not necessarily knowing how to execute any of that, right? Which is, you know, it's only 15 days. But it's just to give them an understanding so they're not completely lost in class. But you know one thing that's, you know, kind of to the point where one of the biggest shifts that have occurred in jiu-jitsu and it's a cultural world trend, I feel like. And I, and I noticed this more and more. And I was interviewing some of Carlson's old black belts, and I realized, okay, I'm not wrong. I'm not going crazy here. Like, I'm, I really got a point. Is that the responsibility has shifted from the student to the instruction. And that's a very strange thing when you think about it. Like, so when I, when I started training, like, you know, there was very little instruction. It was most of the responsibility fell on you to win and learn, right? Now it's kind of the teacher's responsibility to make sure that you learn, which is like really, it seems like, oh, it's better, but I don't, I don't really think it is because the truth is if there's not a willing recipient that is that has a degree of accountability on the other end, it doesn't matter how good of an instructor I am. It goes one in one ear out the other, right? You're better off with a person who has little instruction or less instruction, even if it's crappy instruction, but they're very willing to digest that information on the other end. I think they get more out of it. So I think the shifting of responsibility has been detrimental and it's happened on a very wide scale. And I think it's not just in jiu-jitsu. I think that's overall. Like people think that, you know, if I'm not doing well, it's someone else's fault sort of thing. Like the accountability thing, right? It's just easier to blame someone else. Blame the rules. You know, my favorite, blame the Brazilian referee. Yeah. See how far you make it with that mindset, you know, like, and that, that right there has been one of the biggest shifts that I noticed. And 
yeah, a lot of Carlson's guys, like they would say, like Carlson just barely gave instruction. He was just like go to war, and every now and then you had a question he'd answer. But it was the student's responsibility to acquire knowledge, like to learn through trial and error, you know. And and you know, you can speed progress if you break it down so people don't have to learn everything the hard way. And that's true, but at the same time, I love the fact that you place the account, the responsibility, or the responsibility for learning is yours, not someone else's, for teaching you. You know, I think that right there really speeds your learning in general. Yeah, there's a, there's an interesting kind of pendulum shift there, and I I think that I was probably of the the last generation where maybe things were done in the quote unquote old way because I remember that was how I very much came up. Right, I remember my first jujitsu class. They basically there was no instruction. They basically just threw me in there, let a bunch of blue and purple belts beat my ass, and it was my job to figure it out. And that is very much kind of the old school way, both in jujitsu and also in in MMA, where the idea is basically you, you know, it's not so much about the instructor. It's about hustling and grinding and working hard and making the pieces fall into play. And I think there definitely has been a a switch towards a more coaching oriented style now, which I understand, right? There's a lot of good lessons that frankly could probably be taken from things like sports and coaching psychology that just weren't in jujitsu before. But you do, like you said, I think you have to be careful not to let the pendulum swing too far in the other direction. You know, I, I do agree to some extent that old training methods could be detrimental. I mean, if you just throw everyone into a room and turn it into a fight pit, yeah, you're probably going to see, you know, more injuries at the white belt level than you'd want to see. You probably also are not optimizing to train and grow people as quickly as possible. But the reality, like you said, is someone who has suboptimal coaching, but is just a really grindy hard worker is almost always going to outperform someone who's got really good conceptual coaching, but is just lazy. And so I do think that there needs to be balance to this. You know, I think I do think it's cool that modern instructors are integrating all of these best practices from other sports into jujitsu. But I do think that it, it ultimately still is on the onus of the student to learn and to get good. And the coach is just there to basically facilitate and maybe amplify and guide. But a, a good coach is not going to make you good, right? I mean, if you just pick a, up a lazy person and put them under the best coach in the world, they're not going to become a world champion. It ultimately comes down to you personally. And, and that's the most important variable that you can control. No, I, I'm 100% agreeing. And, and not only that, like just to your point, like there really aren't mutually exclusive. You can have amazing instruction and be accountable for your own learning, right? They're not, it's not, it's not like it has to be one or the other. It's just that people tend to see things like it's, it's, it's comfortable to place responsibility on someone else, right? For the coach, it's comfortable to say, screw you, learn it. I don't have to teach you, right? That's easy. And on the other end, for the student, it's also easy. Well, teach me, coach. If I lose a tournament, it's your fault because you're responsible for teaching me. There are no such thing as bad students. They're only bad instructors. Not really. <laughs> I, I hear that a lot. I'm like, no, there are such thing as bad students. That, that is absolutely <laughs> I, I've seen them. I've met them. <laughs> like I, I, you know, like there are people that don't do a good job. They're not paying attention. They don't care. And that's fine. Yeah. But, you know, it would be wrong to place that responsibility on someone else. Because you're, you know, you're, you're zoned out thinking about something else or you simply don't care. But I, you know, to your point, like, I really think that they're not mutually exclusive. Like, the best is if both parties, you know, take the high road and, and the hard road and go, I, it is my responsibility as a coach to teach well. And as a student, it is my responsibility to absorb that information well and, 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 and take accountability for, you know, for my, for my lack of results or interest or, you know, it, it's not necessarily a coach's job to be 
inspiring you every 10 seconds, you know, like I think a lot of that comes from within you. Yeah, yeah. The best coaches and teachers that I've ever had are the ones who kind of act as amplifiers and sounding boards more than anything. I I think people sometimes expect a coach or or a teacher to be the person who has all the answers. And, you know, if only I trained under a world-class coach who's producing world champions, then I would be the world champion that I deserve to be. I think a lot of people probably feel that way. And yes, that not all coaches are created equal. Some are definitely better than others. But at the end of the day, a coach is not going to make you a different person than you already are. They're just going to give you some tools to guide yourself and to act as a sounding board. They're not going to be like the missing puzzle piece to yourself. You ultimately have to kind of get your own house in order before a coach is going to be really helpful to you. Yeah. No, I, I'm 100% agree, man. Like that's, I think part, part of the problem is these conversations aren't always had and the people, both parties create expectations. They're at odds with each other instead of agreeing on what the expect, mutual expectations are, right? Actually, that's something worth writing down, man. Like that's something that should go on the wall. <laughs> I honestly, I've just thought, I've never thought about that, but that should probably go on my wall and just like, hey man, when you walk in here, know where our expectations are and where they, you know, and what they are and, and, and moving forward, we, we, we're agreeing, we're not at odds with each other. I think that's a big disconnect. You know, I think people aren't always aware of this disconnect. Yeah, I, I kind of feel like when white belts burn out and leave gyms or they just have a negative experience with the gym or jujitsu in general, sometimes that can just come down to misaligned expectations about where their responsibilities begin and where the coaches end. And, you know, this is a really good idea in any kind of working relationship, whether it be on the job or you know, even even with a partner, right? But also in jujitsu to clearly establish and outline the responsibilities between the coach and the student and what ultimately you have to take accountability for and in order to get to the next level and the limitations of what a coach can realistically do for you. I think that is a really valuable piece of documentation to provide to your team. It kind of makes me think of stuff like the, you know, there's a big push right now that some gyms are exploring the reverse classroom model and other new ways of teaching. And a lot of that is about pushing accountability back onto the student to take ownership of their own journey and to, to have an idea of how they should steer their own jujitsu to uh, path and and development. Uh, Because, I mean, you know, when I started, I was kind of under the impression for a long time that you just show up to class and your coach is going to show something and that that's kind of the extent of how you decide what to do and what to work on. But I also think, you know, especially as you get to Purple Belt and beyond, it becomes increasingly important that you self-study and you find your own information and you don't expect your coach to know every single thing, right? I mean, I think that people need to understand that coaches are are even the, the best coaches are fallible. Nobody knows everything. And so even in terms of choosing what to study, I think it's good to have people take some ownership over that path. No, I, I, I agree a hundred percent. And now you're, you're right about the coaches not knowing everything. Like coaching is something you learn. You learn how to teach, you get better at it as you go. And you never know enough. There's always something new to learn. And, and I, keeping that open mind, I think students sometimes don't understand that, man. Like they, they kind of expect the coach to be all knowing and it's it's kind of like a child who expects the parent to you know infallible and you know know everything. It's like man, your parents are like they're learning too. Yeah, you know, like everyone's learning. I'm learning how to be a dad. I'm learning how to be a coach. You know, it's a process for all of us. There's definitely like in terms of jujitsu, man. Like you know, you really look at from the very beginning. We really never really had a fixed methodology like judo had from the beginning. You know, 
it's always been kind of like up for, you know, very flexible. In some ways, it's better because that flexibility allows for new ideas to come in, right? But at the same time, it kind of makes it like very susceptible to, you know, what people think are the best methods, you know? So suppose you had 5 million followers and you get into people's heads that the best way of training jiu-jitsu is X, Y, and Z, even though you have no expertise, people will believe you. And that's the way that that openness allows for good and bad things to come in and out of the sport, right? Like the teaching, my teaching methodology. Whereas like something I do, they kind of fixed it. It's more, it's more rigid, you know, and it's less open to change, but it's less open to BS as well. There's a lot of BS in jiu-jitsu. It's very trend. I wrote an article about this for GTR a while ago. And I think trends are, we associate fashion with good, right? But like trends and fashion have nothing to do with good. That's not, that's not a measuring criteria. You don't tell me a position is good because it's new. Like you have to show me the efficiency of it. But we don't really care about that anymore. Like efficiency is no longer than the guiding north of jiu-jitsu like it used to be. It has become, is it cool or is it not cool? And I'm watching some of these videos because I go on Instagram and I'm watching what some of these guys are doing. I'm going, it's kind of like the spinning triple flying kick in Taekwondo in the 80s. Really mm-hmm. cool to watch. That shit doesn't work. It's like, but we've become the Taekwondo. You know, we've become what we used to criticize. We're just not aware of it because we're so immersed in it. But when I see some of these guys wrapping someone's foot with a lapel like three times over and then trapping the guy's ankle like that, like handcuffing the ankle with a lapel, I'm going, that's it, man. We've become Taekwondo. We become we became what we used to criticize, right? Because it's just so removed from reality, man. It, it is, it's but like that's the problem with trends. It's like where do we allow that to guide the evolution of jujitsu instead of it being guided by the efficiency north, right? Like that's what is what works best in combat, either for MMA or competition, right? Or sport competition. I mean, that's that's kind of been lost, man. Like we we've kind of like gone. It could wear compared to today. It's kind of like a bag blowing in the wind. It's kind of like going wherever the wind blows, you know? And I, I think that there should be more direction as to, you know, where, where the evolution of, of jiu-jitsu was being steered. You know, it's funny you bring that up because that's one of the things I personally love about judo specifically is there is and has always been a very clear regimented classification of everything. You know, the names all make sense. The names are all relative to each other. The techniques are all grouped. There is a a structure in jujitsu. It's much more casual, right? That's one of the one of the things that is actually really cool about jujitsu, like you said, but it also does have its limitations because it means that we are susceptible to to riding trends. You know, I I love the fact that jujitsu is kind of a casual sport. It's very laid back. I think it makes it very hobbyist friendly, which I think is important. But on the other hand, it does make it incredibly hard to suss out, okay, is, is something legitimate? Where did this come from? I mean, the, the challenge I constantly have is people will throw a new name at me and say, hey, Steve, have you ever heard of like the upside down inverted cupcake guard? Like, no, I've, I've never heard of this in my life. I have no idea what you're talking about. And it does feel like it. it is constantly you're playing this game of of trend catch up. And I think you're right. Things like Instagram culture play a big part in that. I mean, most of the stuff that I see when people post on Instagram in terms of these like technique reels, these are things you would never, ever even consider doing in a real match. In fact, in a lot of cases, they are completely the the least efficient way to achieve things. You know, you'll see someone who maybe from a position does some crazy backflip and winds up in an arm bar and it looks cool, but there was probably a way more efficient way to get the arm bar from that position without having to put yourself at risk and and burn all of that energy and create those openings. I actually wound up basically unfollowing a lot of people on Instagram that I 
I felt like I probably should follow because they're famous or they're well-known names, but I just found that the material they were putting out was not really helpful to my jujitsu. It was actually taking my mind away from things that are likely to be high percentage, high efficiency, low risk techniques. And I just thought, okay, look, all of this stuff is cool, but I don't really want that in my feed. It's stuff I'm never going to use. I don't think there's a benefit in really integrating or studying it. And frankly, it doesn't really make me feel good. You know, I want to see cool, efficient jujitsu. I'm not looking to see gymnastics. And that is a a challenge I think that we do have in jujitsu culture, because like you said, you know, just because you're a, a high level black belt, that doesn't mean you've got a big Instagram following. There's a lot of very accomplished world champs who have like 3,000 Instagram followers. And meanwhile, there's blue belts who have like 100,000 followers or more. So I understand the desire to pursue and build a platform because that helps monetize so much. But it also does make it a little bit hard to find some of the good sources of information because they don't necessarily play that game. You know, it's um, it's a matter of direction, right? Like, you, we should think of it just in terms of, like, if we think of it in terms of efficiency and performance, which is where I think our, you know, we should be steering the sport, then you're going to have a certain outlook on jiu-jitsu. But if we steer in the sense of, like, I want to lean towards entertainment and coolness and, you know, popularity, whatever, and then that's it's going to go in a different direction, right? Why would you be surprised? Like, if, if that's the, if that is the goal, if that is the, you know, like the, the mark and the horizon, that's where you're running towards. Like why, you mean it's a different direction. They're not the same directions, right? So you end up becoming, I mean, what's next? Like pro wrestling. I mean, that's what happened to catch wrestling, right? We joke about catch wrestlers did it before everyone else. It really, I mean, they, they go back to medieval Europe. Like they go, they did, they did before the Japanese did anything. They, what we're doing is just what, you know, catch wrestlers has been doing for hundreds of years. The thing is, they never developed the organization like the Kotokan equivalent, right? Or they went to the circus and they got in, you know, they basically gave birth to pro wrestling or they helped give birth to pro wrestling at least. And it's super entertaining, you know, a WWE is very entertaining. But I mean, is that, you see what I'm, where I'm going with this? Like it, my point is that you, it doesn't mean that we will become them. That's not what I'm suggesting. My point is that by placing things like entertainment and coolness ahead of the efficiency factor, you're going to dilute the product. You're going to banalize it eventually. And that's sort of what has happened to every popular martial art on the planet, probably with the exception of judo and wrestling. They've main, they maintain like their, their foot in reality because they had like a more fixed structure, you know, whereas like, you know, we saw what happened to karate and taekwondo and kung fu and now it's happened to Brazilian jiu-jitsu, you know, and it's, I think it's a very dangerous path to tread when you go in the commercial angle. Right, like like things like boxing, judo, and, and wrestling, for example. Maybe because they're in the Olympics, they kept they had funding from the government, so maybe that's that allowed them not to be commercialized to the extent that some of these other martial arts have become commercialized. Like, like you know, taekwondo's in the Olympics, I know, but they it became so commercialized in the '80s that it kind of diluted a lot of they lost a lot of credibility, is what I'm saying. You know, and 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 I worry that Brazilian Jiu Jitsu is kind of going the same path now. Like we're we're becoming them and. And a lot of that has to do with the things that you're talking about. Like we are, we have no, we are no longer placing efficiency as the North. Like we are placing like, is it cool? Is it, I, and I get into this argument with people all the time. But like, but Rob, but this is fun to watch. And I'm like, man, jiu-jitsu is not about being fun to watch. Fun to watch is a side effect. Jiu-jitsu is about does it work? That's what it's always been. That's what, what's that, that's what placed Hoist ahead of a revolution. The fact that it worked, not because it was pretty. I mean, pretty is a side effect. If it is, great. If it isn't, who cares? It worked, right? He got them to the ground. 
and he choked him out. That's what matters, right? But at some point, we kind of like put that in the in this passenger seat, and we've placed entertainment above everything. And I think that's very detrimental. You know, you bring this up, and this ties into a conversation we had recently with Sean J. Hibero on the podcast. And he talked about the difference between kind of the the modern version of jiu-jitsu, but also what he called the romantic version of jiu-jitsu. So kind of this, this classical, traditional core of jiu-jitsu that we all got into jiu-jitsu because we loved. You know, the idea of the smaller, weaker opponent being able to defeat the bigger, stronger opponent using efficiency, using leverage, using pressure. And the end result, of course, is if you play jiu-jitsu that way, it's extraordinarily effective. But yeah, it's not always pretty to watch. I mean, jiu-jitsu is often a, a terrible spectator sport because sometimes at high level jujitsu it looks to the untrained eye like nothing is happening right pressure is not exciting to watch unless you know exactly what's going on because it looks like two people just not moving whereas the the technical intricacies make it incredibly compelling once you've studied to that level and something i talked about with sean jay and i'd love to get your thoughts about is there is definitely this movement towards more dynamic jujitsu, you know, a big focus less on the efficiency and uh, techniques that work, but maybe they require a lot of motion or movement. And the thing that makes this a hard discussion is some of those techniques do work, right? I mean, yeah, there's some that are kind of niche and and novel, and I wouldn't necessarily suggest people do. But I mean, people do things like barambolos and they, you know, they, these do work. There's a lot of really, really highly dynamic what I would consider to be unefficient techniques, but they still work. And if you're athletic enough, you can pull them off. I'd love to get your perspective on that. And if you think that it's worth preserving this romantic idea of jujitsu that is kind of slow and plodding or methodical and how we balance that with some of the, the high speed dynamic stuff we see in the competition scene today. I think the question we always, always ought to be answering, asking ourselves is, is jujitsu a art of combat or is it a sport? And there's a spectrum there, right? Because we have to find that balance. Because if we were real combat, we'd be poking each other's eyes out and we'd be biting each other, right? Hmm. And no one wants to do that. On the other end, if you create too many rules and you ban too many things and you, you, you create situations that are too unrealistic, you're no longer a martial art. You become a game, a sport, you know, like, you know, whatever. And then you got to find that balance. And I, I lean towards the efficiency of combat more than being a sport. And I'll tell you why. If you look at you know the history of martial arts, like you know, you can trace it back to ancient Greece if you want. There's a common thread. There's something that has lasted through the ages. It's always been there. And even though it goes out of vogue, it disappears, but it always comes back and it doesn't die. And, and that is like what I call the center. Right? Like I like talking to some of the Carlson's guys, like Carlson, they some of them call it short jujitsu. The other one called it total jujitsu. The other one called it dry jujitsu. And it was like yeah, and I understood what they meant. It was very Something that's like, what are the things that work consistently? Something like a like an MMA would be like a right hand, a left hook, single leg, a double, a rear naked choke, right? Those things are like very high ranking moves. They, they, they work consistently and they've, they work in every arena. So those won't die. Like, you know, and, and when it comes to fighting, the right hand and the left hook are not going anywhere, right? A single, a rear naked choke is going to be there forever. But when it comes to a lot of the other things that are like efficient, for a specific environment, then I question because that specific environment has been somewhat removed from the reality of combat. So if you if you take the IBJF rule set, which is the dominant rule set out there, it is modeled after the 1967 rule set, which in, in turn is modeled by an in-house tournament the Gracie family ran in 1954, which is very similar to judo. 
you know, like my favorite argument against like when people say, oh, they were never doing judo. I'm like, look at the rule set they created in 1954. And you tell me these guys were not judokas, right? It was very, very, it's like one foot in judo pretty much. But the thing about these rule sets is that they, they shape the practice of the sport, right? Because whatever I allow, that's where I'm going to practice. Whatever I don't allow, I'm not going to practice. So the rules are very important in creating the, the technical atmosphere where the fight's going to take place. And the IBJJF rule set, it, it, it couldn't have foreseen any of these things, but it was meant to mimic reality of combat. When it was originally invented, it, they meant to mimic the reality of combat. That's why you have what we call the progression paradigm. So you're going to go take down two points, pass three, mount four, back four, submission. So there's a, an ascending order of events where you're awarded points according to your progress in situations where not only you're more likely to get a submission, but where you would be able to do damage in a fight. Right, you can punch from mount. Right, for example, that's sort of their mindset. That's why you get two points for taking another one down, but you don't get two points for pulling guard. You get two points for taking them down because on top you can punch in a way that the bottom guy normally can't. Right. So with all these things in the rule set, you see that they had like an orientation towards MMA or towards Valitudo. What they could not have foreseen was that people were going to come up with all these ingenious ways of of winning using the lapel and scoring advantages and like manipulating the rules to their favor to the point where, you know, as the techniques evolved, the rules did not evolve with it, in my opinion. Like the rules kind of got left behind and we kind of lost the North because it's like, you know what, everyone, everyone's happy. They're not complaining and people like the rules and we're, you know, got all these people that are competing and they take that as a sign of success. If we have like 10,000 competitors in a tournament, clearly we're successful. And if that's a metric, then sure. Yes. I personally don't think that's a good metric. I think that's welcome. I think that's awesome. But I don't think that is the ultimate metric of where a martial art should be going. Because again, if you talk about that common thread, the one that goes back to ancient Greece, like we're very far away from it. We've drifted very far from it. And I I think that for, for terms of longevity in the future of jiu-jitsu, if it's going to last another 100 years and it doesn't you know break into like 50 different styles as it seems to be doing right now, then we're going to have to have some cohesion and stick to that common thread that is historical instead of drifting away towards the margins of what is cool and efficient only for a specific environment that is very far away from the center. Yeah, absolutely makes sense. And, you know, I I certainly don't begrudge anyone for doing what they need to do to win within the rules of the game, right? I mean, the the old saying, uh, good heart's law, is that anytime something becomes a, a unit of measurement, it ceases to become a good measure. And you see this very much with rules in any sport. You're always going to have to establish some rules to at least set a, a cadence and, a, and a, a box in terms of what this activity looks like. And there's always going to be people who try to innovate within that box and figure out ways to play to the rules. And so it does become a science of how you manage these rules because you want to preserve some degree of authenticity to the true purpose, right? The true purpose of jujitsu is self-defense. It's not to win IBJJF world championships. And the more restrictions and rules you put around things, if you're not careful and you leave it that way, then yes, you can wind up with strategies getting developed that work very well in competition, but maybe they only work within competition and they're less useful in in the general practice of martial arts or alternately maybe they only work for certain types of athletes and this is something that has a lot of meaning to me personally i mean i'm a hobbyist i have i've never competed right i i went all the way from white to black belt without ever competing i just trained for fun and like 
many people, probably the vast majority of people, I got into jujitsu because I believed it was the best art for self-defense for my particular goals. I saw, you know, Hoyce in the original early days of the UFC, and I thought I that philosophy of fighting speaks to me. And I think that's why a lot of people get into the sport, right? I don't think people get in because they want to be IBJJF world champ. That may come later as they get immersed in the culture, but I'm guessing that most people who start jujitsu are not so familiar with it that they actually understand, you know, what the championship structure and, and scene looks like. That's kind of a desire I think that comes after. I would argue that most people still probably get into the sport, just a guess, but I would assume because of, you know, self-defense and fitness. And the problem with a lot of modern stuff is it does kind of become techniques that either they only work within a rural context or maybe they only work for a certain type of athlete like the thing i do like about the classical jujitsu stuff is pretty much anyone can do it you know i can do it pretty much any non-athlete can do it and still be effective whereas there are a lot of techniques that really they require that athleticism right and and they don't necessarily work for the average person and i think that's kind of an argument like you said that maybe efficiency in movement is not being prioritized like it used to be a hundred percent. And, and man, you, you mentioned something a second ago, and, and I want to touch on it because it's a very important point. Mo- the vast majority of people, you're right. I'm, I'm, I don't have data on this, but like, I'm very confident I'm right. The vast majority of people that start training jiu-jitsu, they're training for fitness and self-defense. And because they heard Joe Rogan say something about jiu-jitsu, and that sounded amazing, so that's what I'm going to do. That right there is single-handedly the biggest drive of people to the gym. So when that person walks in the gym because Joe Rogan and Jocko Wilco told them that that's where they should put their kids because it's an amazing form of self-defense, it's going to build confidence, they're not going to get bullied, so parents believe them, right? They bring him into the gym and then they see a 50-50 with a lapel wrapped on the guy's foot and the parents are going, what the F? Like, what? I, I thought this was – and they're like confused, right? But all these black belts and and they're all going along with it. So the parents go, oh, I don't know anything about fighting. These guys seem to know what they're doing. So I'll just believe them. So they end up becoming absorbed by that world. But I guarantee you their first impression is like, what the hell are they doing? This does not mm-hmm. look like a real fight. And then that world right there becomes – that jiu-jitsu environment, it is – it becomes – the culture is shaped by the what I call the noisy minority, right? So you get these guys that are in the competition circuit and they sign up to full grappling and they go to the local events and they're on Instagram all day and they have photo shoots and they have logos when they're blue belts and, you know, they're really into jujitsu. That's your average like 20-something-year-old that's very active. But that's like the one, maybe 5% of the community. The vast majority of the community are people like you're describing. There are people like, you know, yourself that loves to train. You want to learn how to defend yourself. You have fun with it. You prefer a jiu-jitsu that would work in combat over a jiu-jitsu that's trendy and cool because the truth is most people don't want to compete. I have like maybe 15% of my students compete at best. Mm-hmm. The vast majority and, – and, and not because I push it. I push it. Now, most instructors don't. So, like I think my guess is like 95% of people out there never compete and never will. Other people training. So, for those people, for that crowd, that, that silent majority, they want a jiu-jitsu that's real. But you get the noisy minority that is setting the trends and because they're so active, especially because in the rise of the internet, you know, how active you are gives people the impression of, oh, this is what everyone thinks. I'll give you an example of this. This is, it's insane that people believe this to me. Like maybe I'm missing something, I, I, I'm, but I don't think I am. So when people tell me that, oh, like, you know, these professional events are bringing more eyes to jujitsu. I'm like, what eyes are you talking about? That's how I was like, well, because you see, you hear this all the time. Like, oh, ADCC is bringing eyes to jujitsu. Oh, Flow Grappling is bringing eyes to jujitsu. I'm like, what eyes are you guys talking about? Are you talking about the same people that go to every local jiu-jitsu tournament? 
are you talking about the same people that are already in, enrolled in every gym? Like, there are no people walk like scrolling through the internet and like, oh my god, this this jujitsu thing looks really cool. I'm gonna no. These are people who train. They heard through it from friends. They heard on it on Joe Rogan. You know, they they hear about jujitsu, but they're not watching these events. These events are being watched by people who are jujitsu nerds like myself. You see what I'm saying? That's th- those are the eyes. They're not new eyes. They're the same eyes. The people that are drawing people to sport are not professional events. They're not They're not even tournaments. It's Joe Rogan. It's Hoist Gracie. It's the UFC. It's the friends who train to bring the news. Like, jiu-jitsu is awesome. You should definitely start training. I'm addicted. That's the driving force. And there's a majority there that's not represented in jiu-jitsu today. And that's where I really believe. Like Because I travel, man. Like, I go to gyms all over the world. And I have these conversations with gym owners all over the world. And I hear it over and over and over. It's like, Rob, you're right. The vast majority of my students look at this and go, what the hell is going on? But they stick to it because that's what everyone else is telling them to do. So they're like, okay, I don't really know what I'm talking about. I'm a white belt. You know, like, you know, these guys seem to know what they're doing. So I think that there is a void there that is not being tackled. It's not really being addressed. And the vast majority of practitioners are people like you described who just want a jiu-jitsu that's real and would prefer that. But they're not setting the trends. They're not the influencers, so to speak. Yeah, it's funny. I got this blue belt I trained with, and he's insistent on always pursuing and trying out the latest trends, which I just I adore. I think it's adorable. When I spar with him, he's always trying to do this weird stuff where he he'll do big fancy things like try to tie my lapel in between my legs and go for some weird worm thing. And usually all I do is I just cross face him and sprawl and it breaks it every time and he gets so frustrated. But you know, the fundamentals are a lot of the very basic stuff to me and I think to a lot of other hobbyists like me is super appealing. I mean, I, one of my favorite and most memorable interviews many, many years ago, uh, there was I think it was Hori and Gracie, if I recall correctly, was on SureDog and he was doing an interview and he was saying the difference between me being Hori and Gracie and Brock Lesnar is that there's only one Brock Lesnar. But if you give me enough time, Horian says, you know, I can produce a hundred more Horian Gracies. And he's not talking about having more children, although presumably he probably did. <laughs> but he's talking about the ability to to train that knowledge because, you know, good, efficient movement is not attribute dependent. You can do that regardless of who you are. You don't need to be this freak athlete to make it happen. And I I think that steering away from that, it is unfortunate because like you said, jujitsu, I mean, I know that we always talk about the competitive scene, but jujitsu is owned and driven by hobbyists. They're regular people are the only reason that anyone in the sport can make money. And like you said, it jujitsu is still an incredibly, incredibly niche sport. I think people live in a bubble and they think maybe it's bigger than it is. But, you know, as we do analytics on the landscape, because we're always trying to figure out how can we grow the audience for this podcast and this product that we make. You know, the, the scope of influencerdom in jujitsu is just levels below other sports. I mean, who's the biggest star in our sport? Gordon Ryan, maybe? He's got like 400,000 Instagram followers as of this writing. Simone Biles has almost 7 million, right? It, there's an order of magnitude between jujitsu and other sports. So I think when people say they think that, you know, pajama wrestling is going to take over the world, I mean, we're a long way away <laughs> from jujitsu being anywhere near the other sports, even the other martial arts. And I don't think it's spectator friendly, despite what everyone's trying to do. And I see what they're trying to do. I don't think they can win that battle because wrestling lost, judo lost. I think that, you know, MMA is sport friendly. It's, it's audience friendly uh, because it has knockouts like boxing. 
And that is some language that everyone understands, unlike especially a Western audience that is so uneducated and grappling. It's changing, right? Like in Japan, you saw the pride days, you know, like the Japanese, because everyone trains judo there. So they understand grappling better. So it's a matter of education as well. But I think in general terms, knockouts are more exciting for the audience. So grappling has that problem because it's not very, you know, audience friendly. It really isn't. Like, and I, I hope they can change that one day. But you're right. I think that we're like, we're always going to be behind, you know, like, I mean, I can't believe it. Some people believe tennis is more entertaining than grappling. But yeah, I suppose tennis is always going to be bigger, you know. <laughs> if something is moving, it's probably going to be more entertaining to the layperson 90% of the time. <laughs> you're, you're, you're absolutely right. And I'm okay with that. Like, I didn't start training jiu-jitsu because I wanted to make money, become famous, or have fun. I turned you like, man, this, I want to be Hoist Gracie. I want to be like that guy. That's why I want to be like. I want to be able to take people down and choke them out if I have to. And that's badass. That's And I, I haven't changed. My reasoning yeah. has never changed. But just to like, just going back one second, you know, you're talking about the guy doing all this fancy stuff to you and you're like, man, what are you doing? You know, there's a reason why that's happening. It didn't happen because I was thinking about this. Why did it not, the evolution did not, that revolution you're describing right there, that technical revolution has taken place in the 2000 onwards or the mid nineties onwards. Why did it not take place in the sixties, seventies, eighties? And I'm thinking to myself, well, the main reason is why there are very few competitions, right? We're talking one or two a year with maybe 200 competitors. Someone corrected me the other day. They found a tournament in Rio that had 900 competitors in the 80s. I'm like, kudos. That's the exception to the rule, man. Like most of these tournaments had a max of 200 people. There were small tournaments and there were one or two a year, right? They were spread out. But still, you would think, I mean, there's kind of have to be some level of, of like more sophistication in terms of guard, like, you know? And then I'm talking to these old timers and they say that at least once a week. Listen to this. You may, you maybe you never heard of this. Maybe the, most listeners never heard of this. But I remember this when I started training, it still existed. It was called Taparia, which means the slap fest, pretty much. And once a week, maybe, the instructor would not let you know when. You would just like just you would show up to practice in your gi and you take take your everyone take your jackets off. And everyone take their jackets off. And all right, guys, and he would pair them up like in a volitudo fight. And it was no punches. It was just open hands. So you had to slap your way into a clinch, take them down, and you'd be slapping each other on the ground all the way to submission, right? It's not for everyone. The thing is, the culture in the South Zone where jiu-jitsu evolved, right, where it was really born, what we now call Brazilian jiu-jitsu was born, that was a perfectly acceptable phenomenon. You can show up to practice and you'll go home like, you know, you got smacked in the ear three or four times and that was funny. It was okay. I mean, you couldn't do that to kids today. So I think political correctness kind of shaped jiu-jitsu practice in a way that steered it away from the reality of combat. Because if you did, let's say that shin to shin guard that people do all the time, right? If you did that during a tapadilla practice, you get hit in the head, right? If you played a lot of these, like if you try to play like any kind of guard that wasn't efficient, if you try to do anything that was not combat oriented, you get slapped in the head. Now, why would they do that? And I realized why they were doing it. It was their counter to the evolution of competition because they understood that the reason they created a competition, the Federation of 67, was because they had to compete with judo and they had no means to do it. Valetudo was not for everyone. Self-defense is not interesting. It's not fun. And it's not a, a practice for the mass market. Right? People might enter because they want to do self-defense. No one stays for 10 years because of it. It's too boring. We know that. So they had to create something that was exciting and like modeled after judo. But if they created too much of a sport, they would drift too far away from the martial art end of the spectrum. They would become a sport like judo, which is exactly what they didn't want to happen. So they kept these things. They call it confetti in Portuguese, which means like the check-in. You know, I'm going to check you out. I'm going to check you in. And is in like 
we're going to see where you're at. And they would do that every now and then. And I remember when I started training, we did this. We would slap each other into the clinch and to take down. Then we go at it. We're hitting each other the whole time. And I remember as a white belt doing this, right? But it was a way of keeping your jiu-jitsu real. Now, with the advent of political correctness and, you know, you got to shelter kids and all that, and that the landscape has changed. So you can't do that anymore. And that's, I think, that that combined with more competitions, with more competitors, with the internet, it shot jiu-jitsu in an evolutionary course that is so far removed from reality. I don't even think it can recover from it, right? So I think that's why it's interesting to me to see like how these cultural norms help shape jujitsu as we see today because the stuff they're doing today that they're calling modern guards, you would get a hit in the head 20, 30 years ago. Literally, it would smack you in the ear to teach you a lesson and you would never do it again. Mm-hmm. Well, all of this comes down to, I guess, a question to tie it back to how you teach students. I'd love to know what do what does your game planning look like when you're putting stuff together for, you know, for these kids? If someone comes in and they're, I don't know, a white belt, a blue belt, maybe they're a super athlete and their goal is to be world champion. Of course, we can teach them the fundamentals, which are known to work. But I mean, there is that whole meta game of things that maybe aren't effective for self-defense, but they're definitely effective for competition. How do you teach your your people? Do you teach them to kind of play to the rules or do you give them some more context so that they understand which tool is the right tool for which job? You know, it's if I had more instructors, if jiu-jitsu were more profitable, if I could run it like a wrestling program where I had a bunch of assistant instructors and all that, I'd develop a, a curriculum for each and every student, right? Because every student is different. I'd look at that skinny kid with long legs and I go, all right, man, triangles for you. And I'd look at the short, stocky guy and I'd be, all right, man, wrestling for you, right? Like I would do that. I think that that would be the most intelligent way to approach. But right now what I have is we have a fundamentals class. We have a competition class and I lean towards very little instruction. The more like I used to teach like three or four moves a day. I've come to the conclusion that people don't remember them, A. B, even if they remember them, they still can't do them because it's, it's way, people cannot digest a lot. People, we can see a lot. We can watch a lot, right? Like you can like, like watch 20 moves in a, in a seminar, but you're going to walk away from that seminar with one or two things. That's just the reality of it, you know, like, and even that sometimes is hard. So I'm leaning towards like one move a day now. And we do that for about, you know, like 20 minutes and it's live drilling. Like I make them repeat with speed and resistance. I don't. They can do it with no resistance for the first five minutes. Then the next 15, 10 minutes is going to be within a little bit of intensity, like half speed. You have to execute the move with half speed. And the other person is going to give you half resistance to make you sort of like baby steps towards live combat. And then that, that, that finishes the first half hour, maybe 40 minutes of practice. And then I'm going to do, we're going to do at least an hour of rounds. Like, I mean, on a short day, 45 minutes of rounds, like I lean towards an hour of rounds. That's what I try to do. And then the hard rounds are like very specific. I like short rounds. I'm leaning towards a lot of short rounds lately because I realize people rest less. So I'll have them start in specific positions. They have a minute to finish that single leg. They have a minute to pass to guard. And they give their, put their hearts and souls into it. And you can see them really try it on at the end. Or sometimes they'll do like a long round at the beginning and a long round at the end to cool them down. But most of the training is going to be done with like short, intense rounds where they get it forces them to be competitive, right? It forces them to push that threshold because, again, I'm talking about my competition class here. So, like, that's the purpose is to push them. And I, I, you know, I don't think there's a perfect method, man. But, like, when it comes to instruction, the more I think about it, like, this is me training for 25 years now, man. Like, I've come to the conclusion that one move a day, like, two if they're very simple. But, like, most people can't remember a lot. And you got to give them time to practice that one thing, you know, 
I, I think that we, we, we suffer from something that boxing and wrestling don't suffer from, like this obsession with novelty, right? In boxing, you're doing the same punches your whole life. No one complains. In wrestling, like if you really look at it, there's like five things that people do over and over. They just never complain about, oh, I got to learn a new move every week. Like in jiu-jitsu, guys, we, we have to learn a new move every day. And we're like, oh, I don't like this. This is not good anymore. My strike, guys, you, you can't do anything. Like why do you want to learn new ones? Like you can barely do the ones you know. Like slow down, you know, let give it time to digest information and absorb it because that's what really matters. Otherwise, it's just a curiosity. It's a, it's a matter of memory. You watch someone do something. Oh, you memorize it. And now you think you know the moves. You can speak with it with authority. Is that what it's about? To be able to flex in the room. Look how many sweeps I know. It's just not important. Like, can you do the move or not? That's what really matters. Right? Yeah, this is something that man, I, it hits pretty close to home for me because I have definitely felt this burden of too much quantity and not enough quality in instruction. I mean, I remember going to a seminar. It was like a three-hour seminar, and I counted. The instructor showed twelve different techniques. I mean, even as a black belt, I could not remember that, right? I had to take notes and write it down. And I certainly never bothered to actually apply any of that stuff because it's just too much. You can't remember 12 things bombarded at you all at once. That's just too much cognitive load. Whereas I've also been to seminars that have been hours long and the instructor only teaches one thing and they just really focus on drilling at home, making sure everyone gets adequate time to do reps, answering questions that come up. And that stuff sticks with you way more than just getting bombarded with different techniques. Um, I also agree with you too that, you know, there's this focus on throwing more techniques at people when they can't even do the single most basic, most important things. I mean, I, I realized a while ago, you know, when when we teach people jujitsu, we're teaching them at a, like a white belt level. Okay, you need to do this particular move or this particular sequence. So we bring in a white belt and we expect them to be able to, you know, go from a pendulum sweep to an arm bar and pull that off seamlessly. And we kind of forget exactly how many steps are involved in doing something like that and how many variables. And man, sometimes we would be better off just teaching people you know, how to, basic things like how to maintain and manage their posture, you know, in boxing, boxing is a great example, right? Yes, you can bombard people with technical details and combinations. You could do that. But everyone from day one in boxing is taught chin down, hands up footwork, right? <laughs> Those are like the most important things. Everything else is just an application of that. And a good coach is just going to constantly be barking out to you, chin down, hands up, Footwork. You even hear this in high-level MMA where the coach has to remind people because it's so hard to stick to those basics. And I realized, you know, th there are parallels in jiu-jitsu. There are basic posture and structural things that are pretty much always true. And man, rather than badgering our students about all of these different variations of like a, you know, a spider guard sweep that they may realistically never use. It may be better to just badger them on the, on just fundamental postural and structural considerations so that they just know how to move their body efficiently. And if they can do that, then bolting on new techniques is not that difficult if you kind of have a basic foundation to work with. I couldn't agree more. Like that's exactly how I feel about it. I think we, there's no contradiction between having a practice that is efficient, fun, with plenty of room for evolution, but guided by reality. Like you gotta keep that foot in reality. If you drift too much, you turn into that bag in the wind, you know? And then mm -hmm. I, I think that's what's happening to Jiu-Jitsu right now. Like it's, it's gone, like there's no direction. Like we have to give direction to the sport. We have to constantly bring ourselves back to planet Earth and go and does this work? And, and this has nothing to do with an old versus new debate. I am very much, I mean, there are many, Kimura is an old move, right? The Kimura, the, the Degarami. It's a very old move. 
there's plenty of new setups for it. I'm like watching new setups for the Kimura all the time. I'm like, well, I'm not opposed to that because I know the Kimura works, right? And there are plenty of new back takes. Like back, back is king. Back is the number one. That's the 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 crown jewel of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is a Renekid choke, right? Like look how many back take setups we've seen in the last five, ten years. So evolution is good. Like this conversation should not be framed in terms of old and new. It should always be framed in terms of the question, does it work or does it not work? And when I say work, I am talking about combat. I'm not talking about sport because to me, like submission only has drifted so far away from the reality of combat. To me, it's just like in submission only, it makes sense to lay flat on your back, cross your arms and wait for overtime. That's how crazy Mm -hmm. it is. It makes perfect tactical sense. Not surprisingly, it's exactly what they do. They're taught not to turtle. Why? Because you expose the back. You don't do that. Stay flat on your back. If you did that in a fight, you get elbowed in the head. You see what I'm talking about? Like we allowing things that are so removed from the reality of combat that because we're, we're entertained. Oh, it's about, about entertainment. But the entertainment is not a good north. And that's like my new book has a lot about this. That's why I'm like touching on this subject a lot because it kind of dawned on me like, man, this is, you know, the beginning of the end. Like the book is tentatively titled like the rise and fall of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Like why did it rise and why is it falling? Because I believe it's on its way down at this point, not because popularity. Popularity is through the roof. It's on its way down in terms of what has sustained it throughout its life, which was the efficiency of combat. And if you lose that, what sustains it then? Fashion? Well, fashion changes. Fashion comes and goes. Tomorrow, Joe Rogan likes something else. He doesn't like jiu-jitsu. And then what? We lose Jocko Wilk in our corner. We lose all these guys as influencers. And then what? What do we have? Right? So that that's not something strong to hold on to. I don't think it's a strong enough cornerstone to uphold you know, jiu-jitsu wanted to become as popular as judo because I worry that it's, it's it's just a fad. And if we don't give structure and direction, hold on to something concrete like the efficiency of combat, that historical threat I was describing, I think we're on our way now. Well, I ask you then, if you were the king of jiu-jitsu, you know, you got a magical wand, you can make all the decisions. What would you change? What would be the things that you would do to steer us away from that path and to make the art what you think it ultimately should be? Well, look, I, this <laughs> Look, the thing about interesting thing about jujitsu is that if there, let's say there's like a million practitioners out there, right? There's a hundred, there's a million different rule sets. Like everyone has their own idea of what should be legal and what should be illegal. I'm actually writing an article about this, which might end up turning into a little book manual, like down the road, about like an ideal rule set. And I, I think that one thing that we have to bring back is we have to find a way to incorporate strikes into jujitsu to keep the reality of it alive always. The thing is, people don't want to get hit, and that's going to ostracize a lot of people. It's going to scare parents, especially in this day and age, right? You know, like people like, oh, my God, you know, the, the kid's got a bloody nose. Everyone's freaking out. Like, man, we've got bloody nose like every day when we were kids. You know, it's just like it's changed. The world has changed in that regard. It's gotten different. So we have to watch out for these things. But I think there are ways of like I have some ideas in terms of like punching the ground next to the head so you're not actually hitting mm-hmm. the person, but you're letting them know that if they stay there, they're getting hit. And awarding points for that, right? So you would have something that's very proximate to reality of combat, still fun, and no one's getting hurt. Yeah, I love that idea. We've talked about similar things here, too. I mean, I fully, as a parent myself, I fully get the reasoning behind not letting your 
you know, your kid gets struck in the head. I would certainly not put my kid in like kids MMA or anything because we know more and more about CTE now than we used to. But on the other hand, I think that there are still things you could do to adjust the rule set to make it more pliable within the the realm of self-defense while also still keeping it competitive, keeping it true to the art without changing things too much. But I think there would be ways to make it better for self-defense. I like the idea of kind of like missed strikes like you talked about. I mean, I think another thing is if sure we can keep slams illegal if we want to, I think maybe that should be reconsidered. But if we want to keep slams banned, I think if you get someone into a slamming position, there should at least be some sort of reward for the person who does it. Right. Because I think a lot of people are not fully in tune with how dangerous it can be, for instance, to do a triangle choke on someone if you're smaller. You know, you can you can get badly, badly damaged going by some of these moves. And a lot of people never train with that kind of environment. I think that if you can, for example, get someone into a slamming position, that should absolutely be a a point scoring opportunity, even if slams remain illegal. And I like the idea of um, kind of like missed strikes or hitting the ground as well. I think that could definitely work. No, I, I think it would. I think that there are ways. The thing is, IBJJF is so successful. It's very hard to change a structure that's that big and successful. Because when you start changing things about the structure, you start modifying the building that is working, right? And that's kind of like, it's sort of like, if it ain't broke, don't fix it kind of thing, you know? And then it's difficult because they lead jiu-jitsu. At the end of the day, they are the ruling body, right? They are the quote con of Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So it's very difficult for them to change things. And I think they make some changes here and there that are very beneficial. There's a lot more they could be doing, in my opinion. I wrote an article about this I can send you later. Oh, yeah. I'd love to get that. I can put it in the show notes, too. I've been writing articles for GTR like every week and like it's everything we're talking about. And I got a bunch more coming. And, you know, the, the thing is, people don't care, man. Like no one's thinking that far ahead. People are thinking me right now. I'm having fun. I'm making money. That's all that matters. And, and it's fine. But I, I think we, you know, we should think about the future of jiu-jitsu. I don't, I don't think, I really don't think people are. Even the leadership, man. Even the leadership. A lot of the leadership. Like, you know, I do Jeff does because I know those guys. They, they, they think ahead and. Even with my disagreements with them, I know they have a long-term vision for jiu-jitsu. When I'm saying long-term, I'm talking like hundreds of years down the road. Like this is going to be alive when all of us are dead, right? That's the kind of vision they have. And like, and, and I know this for a fact because I'm constantly talking to them about these things. But on the other hand, like I think a lot of practitioners, influencers, organizations, they're kind of looking at ticket sales. You know, they're looking at popularity. Like those are not good metrics. They're not, I don't care what people say. Anyone who believes that ticket sales are good, it's a good metric for the growth of jiu-jitsu. Like, dude, like, I mean, I joked about this the other day. You're going to have Paris Hilton, you know, fight, you know, Hasbula in a mud wrestling match and that sell more tickets than Khabib and McGregor, you know, but, you know, that, was that good for MMA? Is that what we want to see? Like, is that what we want? I mean, you can banalize it and sell tickets. It's easy to banalize something in order for, for you to sell tickets and make money. But at the same time, you will you lose credibility when you do that. Like, how much credibility are we willing to lose in the name of entertainment? You know, I don't think it's a good long term strategy. But people don't care because I'm making money. How are you going to stop someone from making money? You know, that is, and, and this is this is the Americanization I'm talking about. Like, for all the qualities we have as Americans, like what, we have this obsession with money. That's like, it's like it's the highest achievement. There's just nothing more important than that in life. It's like. No, man, jiu-jitsu is not – just because you're making money, that doesn't mean what's best for jiu-jitsu long-term, right? And I think at some point we have to go, like, what is best for the longevity of the sport? It's credibility. Because right now I think we're in the process of losing credibility. 
you know, and that's mm-hmm. coming from a lot of leadership. And that means coaches, that means organizations, that means influencers, that means a lot of these professional promotions because they're thinking about right now. And if you're in a position of leadership, man, that does come with a responsibility of like thinking ahead. And I, I really don't, and I know a lot of these guys, man. I, I've, I've known these guys for years. They don't think ahead, man. They don't, they're thinking right now, like what can I make right now? Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. And I I see what you're saying here. I would ask then if maybe to close this off, if there are white or blue belts or, you know, youngins listening to this podcast, would, do you have any advice or thoughts for them, suggestions for them to kind of navigate this path? Because it is a very interesting time for jujitsu, right? The, the sport has changed a lot since I started just, you know, 12, 13 years ago. So I'd love to know from your perspective, any, any advice, coping mechanisms, maybe, or just general guidance for people who are newer to the sport and don't yet have that historical and cultural context for jujitsu? You know, I think the guidance, it's, it's difficult because no, it's a great point, man, because if you're a white belt and you just walked in yesterday, you're listening to me right now. You think I'm crazy. Like, what the hell is this guy talking about? Right? It's because it's it's a lot. It's a lot. And it's at odds with what we're seeing. Right? I'm like, I'm seeing the opposite of what everyone else is saying or doing. And it's very different. How do I put that information in the age of TikTok, there in the age of TikTok? I'm supposed to get my message across in 10 minutes. We've been talking for an hour and I think I've barely been able to get my message across. Mm-hmm. And I write these in-depth articles at GTR, but people don't read anymore because I think writing is the only way you can truly get your ideas across. So I'm writing the second. The first book sold well. I think the second one is not going to do as well, but some people will read it. But you know, we're, we're talking to people who don't, they, they're going to dedicate maybe like five minutes of their day to reading something and like they don't want to do more of that. And I get it. There's a lot of things going on in the world you don't care, but at the same time, like if it doesn't matter if I'm right or wrong, if, if it's not making its way out there, if people aren't reading, they don't know it. You know, you know, and I'm supposed to compete in TikTok land and, and get this mm-hmm. message across in 10 seconds. How do I do that? It's a very strange time. It definitely is. And I mean, I know that there's maybe a, a natural and understandable drift towards shorter form content, but I agree with you. I much prefer longer form conversations like this because you can really unpack and dig into concepts much more in depth than you can in like a 30 second highlight clip. So I, I think that this kind of conversation is really helpful because it does add that nuance and nuance is something that people often don't realize if they're just consuming bite-sized content. I mean, I remember when I started jujitsu, you know, for a long time, the only knowledge I had of the history of jujitsu was the, the marketing that basically had been presented to me at the gym. So I had this completely warped understanding of the history of jujitsu. I mean, I'll, I thought that, you know, the Gracies were these saint-like figures who were noble warrior scholars who benevolently distributed this art across the world. But of course, you know, the more I learn about them, they're a very complicated family. They are not all angels. There's a lot of good and bad and no one can take away from their accomplishments. But I mean, like I said, they're a very, very complicated family. And I find that as a newer grappler, you're often not armed with the historical and cultural context to understand these things. And that's more than just a cultural thing, too. It also comes down to the way that we train, because as I get older, I I question now a lot of the things that were taught to me and are still being taught as fundamentals. You know, how much of the way that we teach and the things that we focus on do we do because that's just the way that our instructors taught us versus whether it truly is the best way. And I think that conversations like this and people who take a longer historical lens of jujitsu like you do are really helpful because they help us have the context to have these conversations yeah i mean it's an uphill battle man it's an uphill battle because i realized that today it is no longer about being right it's about 
getting your message out there. You can say that it doesn't matter what you say as long as you get the message out there. When people watch you and they listen to you and then you could be wrong, it doesn't matter. That's you you've done the job. So it's you know, being accurate is not even a priority anymore. Like being fair, being right. It's just so it's it's very difficult to, you know, navigate and try to do something for jiu-jitsu in that environment. It's very mm-hmm. hostile. And and again, in the young generations they don't read. So it's really going downhill in that direction. I, I don't think there's a way around that because it's a much bigger cultural problem, well beyond jujitsu, you know. And I'm like, right, I guess well, that's where we're going. We're going to <laughs> we're going to banalization. Everything is you know supposed to be compartmentalized in 30 seconds, and that's the information era, right? I think the internet is. He was like, I used to believe that like the problem with the world was that people didn't have access to information nor means to express their opinions. I don't believe that anymore. (laughs) I read about someone called this the paradox of abundance, which is this problem that if you have a massively, massively wide, large market for content and material, you're going to have higher mountains, meaning that you're going to have more content out there. So just statistically speaking, you're probably going to have a lot more good stuff than if the doors were closed and people couldn't put their stuff out there. But you're also going to have a lot more bad stuff as well. Right. And I think I think that platforms like YouTube and TikTok and other social media platforms are great examples of this where, yes, there is amazing content out there. There is absolutely more good material now than there was when I started. I mean, I remember struggling really hard to find good instructional content when I started jujitsu. Now you can't throw a rock without hitting a, like a really, really quality instructional. But the problem is in addition to the good stuff, there's so much noise and so much garbage because there is no quality gatekeeper anymore. And that makes it much harder for a lay person to judge the quality of that material, right? I mean, if I, if I go and I am a white belt and I just follow all of the popular BJJ, you know, Instagram and TikTok accounts, I am not equipped to know if what I'm seeing is good stuff or if it's social media appealing stuff. And that is just, that's just like you said, not a jujitsu concern specifically, but that's just a challenge of the, the democratization of content that we deal with now where anyone can be a publisher and can get their stuff out there, it creates so much noise that it's no longer easy to sort out what's good and what's not. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And I I don't know if there's a way around that, man. But like the way I look at it is I stay optimistic, you know, to keep my sanity. And then I, you know, I do my part. Yeah, well, I, I definitely appreciate you doing your part, man. And on that note, if people want to check out your work, if they want to follow you, if they want to grab the book, where can they do that? How can they go about uh, checking out the stuff that we've talked about here today? You know, for my book, you can go on closedguardfilm.com or you can go on Amazon and purchase it. I own a gym in Las Vegas, so if you're ever in town. I'm not super active on Instagram, social media in general, but my Instagram is at Robert Drysdale JJ. And uh, yeah, I travel for seminars. I make a good living from that. So Jiu-Jitsu has been good to me, man. And I always like, like to make new friends. So, you know, if you're ever in Vegas, stop by, no politics. Awesome. Well, I, I love that, man. And next time I'm in Vegas, I'd love to come down and meet you in person. But thanks a, so- a lot so much for joining us here, Robert. I really appreciate it. Absolutely, brother. Anytime. Cool. And of course, to everyone out there who listens to us, if you want more, the website is bjjmentalmodels.com. That's got a full link out to everything we do between the newsletter, the all of the podcasts we've done, the, the whole database of jujitsu concepts that we've got up there, all free of charge. If you want to support us financially, the best way to do that is with our awesome premium service. You can get that at premium.bjjmentalmodels.com. There's a free trial, so you can check it out at no risk. At the moment, there's over 50 hours of awesome instructional content on there, so I highly recommend checking it out. 
out. Also includes our access to our sweet community and uh, to our rolling and video feedback review service. So please do check that out again, premium.bjjmentalmodels.com. So with that said, I'll tie this one up. Robert, again, thank you so much for coming by. Really enlightening conversation and it was awesome to connect with you. Likewise, brother. Thank you so much and definitely stop by the gym sometime. Thanks, man. And of course, to everyone who listens, thanks to you as well. Talk to you next week. 